0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this.
1: For more information about our programs, please visit
0: www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Amal slash It's been a while since somebody called me Amal. Um, But some people in the room actually met me as Amel. so this is something that was very real for Syrians um, and still is real for Syrians uh, for the past eight years. Um, thank you for um, hosting me. Thank you, Professor Don Shutli for inviting me to give this keynote. Um, I'm very excited to be here at NYU, Abu Dhabi. It's my first time in the UAE. and um, it's a great campus, great school, and I'm very excited to be part of this very important workshop about the Syrian refugee crisis and about the future of Syria. Um, Today, like I mentioned in this room, I have um, friends and very close friends, people that I haven't seen in 20 years, to people that I met through the revolution. And uh, this is kind of the fate of the Syrian people. One of the happier moments, the few happy things that we have is that we've scattered across the globe. And so wherever we go, um, we actually can meet friends and meet people we love um, wherever we go. And so we find glimpses of home um, across the globe. Today I'm going to be taking you on a tour of home in all of its manifestations through my experience as a Syrian-American architect, writer, and humanitarian from Aleppo. So this is me, um, many, many years ago. And this is at the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, I'm at my drawing desk uh, where I was studying my master's degree in architecture and I had just graduated from University of Aleppo, um, and I had come to Providence to study at one of, if if you know RISD, it's one of the more um, progressive art schools probably in the world, so going from University to Aleppo to RISD was a huge culture shock. And um, my first day at RISD, I walked into the studio, and every person on their desk, there was a 25-pound bag of clay, and the, um, the assignment was very simple. It said, make a joint. And my mind went to like, how am I going to make a joint? I need wood, I need cardboard, I need something hard to make of a material to make a joint because I was thinking in the only way that I knew, a very rigid way of thinking that we were taught at the university. And I was looking around and nobody else was having this problem. They were opening up their bags and they were making joints out of clay. And I didn't know what to do. I felt very embarrassed and actually even worse, I didn't even know what to think and um, so I kind of tried to make myself as small as possible behind my desk, invisible, so nobody would ask my opinion, and I was very quiet, and I just watched. And that went on for a few months, um, as that, those three years at RISD really became um, one of the most transformative times of my life. And, um, and the people around me, my colleagues and my classmates, they actually worked in a very different way than me. They would stand in front of their projects and speak about their ideas with so much confidence and really believed in what they were talking about even if it was impossible to make, impossible to build, but they stood behind it and they spoke to their professors, our professors, as uh, mentors, um, almost as peers um, and, uh, and with, uh, with a way of viewing the world and speaking speaking a language that I didn't even know, I didn't even know existed. And, um, and with time, I too began to see the world in a different way and start to have more confidence in my ideas and my thoughts and began to see worlds as po- being possible. And I talk about my time at RISD being a time where I felt that my brain, I knew my brain was being rewired. I went in one person, came out another person. And as we know now, this actually has a term, it's called brain plasticity. And we know that you can actually change your mind. Um, and this is something that we know from growth mindsets and from education studies, and that's what I went through when I was at RISD, and it was a really powerful time, Um, and I'm sure as you are educators in the room and people who have been through um, years of uh, study in different places, um, I want to ask, has anybody had that kind of moment in time when you've had a teacher or a mentor or somebody really transform the way that you think can you like raise your hand? Do you remember that moment? You do you remember that person or that place? It's very, very powerful. And I come back to these moments in the past few years through my work at Karam Foundation, the organization that I run, and I think about that when we work with Syrian refugee kids uh, because it's a really powerful thing to take into consideration um, in the context of um, loss at the scale that we have had and the context of um, the crisis that we have. So this is not how I usually start my talks on Syria. Um, I've given many talks, been on many panels, attended many talks, and usually talks on Syria in the past eight years start with something like this. Um, Mass destruction, this is Aleppo. Um, This is Zaatari camp, mass camps, mass displacement. Um, Images of families in tragedy, um, especially in the exodus to Europe um, that ended um, with so many people losing their lives and really just basic despair at um, at a real, at a collective level. And the, for the past eight years, we've seen these images. We've seen the iconic images that I actually used to always show and chose not to show today of Elan Kurdi, of Amran, of um, all of these images of children um, that have been used to portray the suffering of the Syrian people, become viral moments in the media, um, become collective compassion, uh, drive the, you know, donations, drive some kind of talk about change, and then really go away as we move on to the next thing, the next crisis, the next tragedy in the world. And as time has passed, um, these kinds of images and these kinds of storytelling is actually becoming something that is not helping um, the Syrian cause, because when you see these kinds of images as a viewer, you don't have anywhere to go from here it stops. You feel pity, you feel sad, you feel despair. When I talk to people who aren't Syrian about, and are very compassionate about the cause, about how this makes them feel, you hear, um, I feel hopeless, I feel overwhelmed, I feel numb to the images, I feel I can't do anything. And, um, And then the conversation stops. And so we have been defined through these past eight years through these labels of what Syria is. Syria equals war, Syria equals refugees, Syria equals loss. But if we go back, um, Syria didn't equal any of these things. For me, Syria equaled Aleppo, and Aleppo equals home. This is an image of the old city of Aleppo from the top of the citadel when I was an architecture student at the university, and, um, and this is looking into the old city. Much of what you see here, as you probably know, has been destroyed or damaged, it doesn't exist. And, um, and this is how the definition of Syria was fundamentally to me, my entire life. Um, Syria equals Nana's house, my grandmother's house in El Sabil, um, in Aleppo, a place where um, I learned my roots, I, I learned who my family was, and she brought the whole family together throughout the years, and um, it's a fundamental place in my memory and Syria equals um, the objects that we left behind, the things that you never thought were that extremely important, put behind the glass and the vitrine um, to be looked at from afar, but then you realize that you're never going to see them or touch them again, and each piece has a meaning. So for me, Syria equals home, and home equals Aleppo. And if you're from Aleppo, um, or you're from Damascus, or one of the very old cities of Syria, um, Aleppo being one of the largest, um, longest continuously inhabited cities in the world. I'm not gonna make the people of Damascus upset about this, so we'll say one of um, and leave it at that. Uh, but if you're from a place like Aleppo, I mean, you're defined by the history of the city and you're defined by the fact that you can't, your life is a blink in the eye of this city's history and you won't be able to change anything in it. And I felt that growing up. And um, until you've actually lived through war, as Syrians have and other people have through their own wars, you realize that it's actually, cities are extremely fragile. We can actually depend, even though it's existed um, for 10,000 years, we can actually destroy it in a very very few amount of years and that is um, a devastating thing to acknowledge. I always used maps. Um, I love maps, and I started really looking at maps closely when I was a university student in Aleppo studying um, urban design. We were part of the group of people in our fourth year where we had to start mapping out the old city of Aleppo as part of the first maps that would eventually become the master map that was used to rehabilitate the old city of Aleppo in the late 90s and into the 2000s, a very successful project. Um, not much of it exists now because it was destroyed. But this is a, a typical tourist map of Aleppo that I kept. And it's something that's very simple, shows you the landmarks. It's very easy to read and orient yourself very different from these maps um, from the fall of 2016, during the fall of Aleppo, and the battle um, for Aleppo between um, the Syrian regime and the opposition forces. And these are the kinds of maps that I would see in the media, on social media, on Twitter, um, used by people who have never been to Syria, who have never been to Aleppo, and it would be all about where is the battle line, where is it moving, where is it shifting, without thinking about the people behind these lines where our homes are, the places that we love are, our family still exists. And you look at that and it causes so much anxiety to you while you, while you look at this and, um, and really it becomes something that's very detached from the, our reality. And nothing can prepare you really to be looking at maps like these um, through a war. And nothing can prepare you to have to write articles like the articles that I wrote for um, many years throughout um, the Syrian war, and um, the the article about Aleppo being destroyed. So. Memory maps are things that I I call the memory maps, um, are things that I used throughout my studies. I use them at RISD. I use them as the basis of my thesis at MIT. And what I call memory maps are really projects that I do with my family. Um, Later, I did them a lot with refugee kids um, to actually draw a map of memory of your home, of your city, and actually use it to express things that you wouldn't usually express in an actual piece of writing. And So what I love about these, and these are examples from um, 2003 um, of uh, maps that I did with my family. Uh, My family members did them at my request of Sahad Sadal al-Jabri in Aleppo um, as part of my thesis for MIT about public space in Syria. And um, and people actually drew their maps in specific um, moments in time and also started to tell stories about different events that happened even without me asking for them because this is what this place meant to them, um, even though it was a central um, square in the city that you used all the time. And so it collapses time and it allows you to add layers of, um, it, of experiences. And recently, I started to go back and start to do this myself, um, starting to draw floor plans of um, different rooms in my grandmother's home, in our home in Aleppo, and begin to really try to document everything that happened or things that I remember or where things were placed and use that as a mechanism of memory. So I'm going to do something tonight that I've never done before, and I'm actually going to have all of you create a memory map. Uh, mapping home exercise. You have all paper and pencils. If you don't, raise your hand, um, and we'll get that to you. And we're going to... This is something that I've done many times with... Syrian kids in um, refugee schools. I've done it in a refugee camp, an IDP camp in 2013 for the first time. And I actually we are all going to be architects for about the next 10 minutes, and you're going to be drawing your home, a floor plan of your home. And uh, uh, you can draw whatever you want to express in that. Um, and we I'll do you I'll show you how to do it by drawing the floor plan of my home in Aleppo and telling you a little bit about my home. So you can start with me. You can watch and then draw. We'll have about five minutes to do this, and I'm really excited to see what we can um, come out of this, and a little bit nervous, too, so because I haven't done this in a while. But I'm going to tell you about my home. A floor plan, by the way, is an architectural drawing that if you, um, if we sliced off the top of this building and we were looking down, you'd be looking down at the spaces and see how they connect together. So I lived on the third floor in our apartment building in Aleppo, which is very typical for um, people in Aleppo usually living in an apartment building. And um, it, there was a staircase that goes up and we would have the entrance and that's the, how you draw a door. I'm going to put this down. Feel very self-conscious now doing it in front of everybody that are not kids. <laughs> um, and here is the kitchen, and there was a long balcony in front of the kitchen. And see the walls and the windows, and this is a symbol for the window. So all of this learning how to draw, actually, I learned how to do this in University of Aleppo, and um, the University of Aleppo, as you may know. Um, was one of the places where it was bombed early in the war in 2012, in the same exact place where I studied, and actually I have a friend who studied in the same um, building, um, and it killed over 80 people sitting in the same places that we lived in, and it's one of the big tragedies of the University of Aleppo in this war. Um, This is the kitchen, this is where my mother would cook, And this is where we would have, in Syria, the main meal of the day, probably the same here, is lunch. And this is where I would sit for lunch with my mother, my father, and my two younger brothers. And then there would be the formal dining room here. And this is where we would host big lunches with my entire family, and my aunts, and my uncles, and my cousins, and the formal living room right here. And there was a set here. Dawn, you probably would like this that my mother, who is actually not a nostalgic person at all, she's a doctor and very, she's not like me, doesn't like talking about memory that much, uh, very rational, but when we moved to Syria from the United States, she bought this set um, from a family, an old family in Aleppo, that they were selling all of their um, antiques, and they said that Jamal Abdel Nasser sat on this couch, and she bought the whole set because he sat on it. So that's like, you know, a piece. (laughs) And we always think it's funny because it was unlike her to do something like that. Um, we had an accordion door here between the living room and the family room and a big balcony. And I remember when I did this workshop for the kids in Ultima Camp. Um, and trying to explain to them what an accordion door is to kids who are from very tiny villages in Aleppo, and they just could not understand a door opening and closing like this. And and they thought that was really like something amazing, and it was very funny, and I learned not to use that example when I would teach this class (laughs) in front of the kids. And then here in the back, we had the bedrooms, and there was my room right here. And this bedroom is where I spent most of my time. I had a drawing board. I had my books, my desk, and everything here where I learned so much about um, school and um, learning how to become an architect. And when I left, uh, the last time I was here was in 2011. And I really didn't think that it was going to be the last time I would be in this home. And here was where my brothers shared a room, and they made a really big deal about this their whole lives, that they had to share a room. But um, I think that's actually one of the blessings of um, having an apartment where you have to share your space, because it made us all much closer together. And this is my parents' bedroom and when my father, he's an eye doctor, um, and he would come home from work very tired, and he would sit on the bed and before lunch, and he would say, um, step into my office, and he still does that until today, which we think is very funny, and my kids don't really understand why he does that, but it's um, something he did every single day, and we loved it. So this is basically the floor plan of my home in Aleppo. I'd like you all to draw your home and kind of use um, whatever uh, methods that you'd like about um, drawing it. You can add on stories. You can start writing things about, you know, what happened with who. And you can... um, Add on when this happened, who it happened with, where this is, and you'll have about five minutes to do that. Be creative. So the second piece about the memory map exercise is actually telling the story of the map. So I'm actually going to call um, a couple people from the audience to do this. So um, I'm going to start by calling out um, Nisreen. Can you come up and um, give us a little story, and then the second person, I'm going to need somebody to volunteer. So prepare yourself. (laughs) Where's your drawing? No, you have to show your drawing. She can use this mic. Is it good? Yeah, it's okay. Thank you, Nasreen. Please tell us, stand here and tell us about... Oh Yeah! Okay, or just talk loudly. Hold your drawing and tell us about your map. Okay. I don't think be... Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, go on the mic. Well, I'm
1: embarrassed now. I wasn't prepared. It's <laughs> okay! You have experience in saying. No, no. Okay, so this is my sweet home in Damascus and thank you for giving some credit for uh, Damascus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So this is my home in Damascus where I lived for 35 years of my life in this sweet home full of love and happiness. Thanks God. So this is um, the dining room with our living area and the Dedicated area for guests, which is a must in every <laughs> Syrian home. <laughs> this is the main bathroom. This is the kitchen with two bedrooms and another bathroom. And the balcony from this side, overlooking the uh, Jahiz uh, park, if someone from Damascus should know it. Thank this you is my so suite. much. And I have, by the way, <coughs> I have some Yeah.
0: Memory. So
1: sure
0: memory. Me, Yes, I know. We spent a lot of time there. We have two architects today. Yes, very lucky. Hello. <laughs> yes. Hello. <laughs> Thank <you. laughs> Yes. And who would like to come up and talk about their map? One person. <laughs> Thank you. No, you, there's no such thing as a bad map. Come up. Yes. So what's your name?
1: My name is Dua. Uh, so this is also my house in Damascus. I lived there for 18 years. And what i remember we had two doors and they confused everybody so one would go to the guest uh, room which is a must as uh, she mentioned and then you have the the door that actually shows you the house which is very different than the guest the guest room is always you know so special has the most expensive things while the rooms will be you know so modest and just normal <laughs> okay and so here you go you have a corridor and this is where you used to throw our shoes in the door my mom. Like, just put your shoe in the cabinet. So like that would say everything. Go to the living room. It's very small. We're six. Uh, we're six mm-hmm. children, one my parents, and the living room is very small, but it's actually as like you mentioned, like it brings out the best. Because you know you have to share the same area to eat, study and do everything. And this is the bedroom. Also we used to share it, boys and girls. And we had this wardrobe and for us it was like, oh my God, it's something so fancy because it was inside. You cannot see, so you have to enter the closet. And I remember when we built it and I was a child and we like, oh my God, this is so amazing. So for me, that was the first masterpiece I saw in my life, a closet. Mm-hmm. Then you have the dining room which is Ramadan for me, because we never used it. <laughs> yes. Unless it's Ramadan and we have guests, and that's the only occasion. Other than this, we just eat here yeah. somewhere else. And finally, my, this is the guest room, the fancy room, No the one allowed to enter, unless it's Eid or we have someone special coming in. Finally, my, my dad and mom's bedroom, and it's also very, you know, like that room that no one is from the kids is allowed to be there, and now when I visit as a guest, I'm allowed
0: there, and be like you know. Do you want to sleep in that room? So yes. Thank you so much, Dua. Thank you. I love that the dining room is Ramadan. You know, it's like it's, the home becomes parts of events, and that's very typical for homes and also for cities. So um, I hope you enjoyed this exercise. If you want to continue your drawing, um, and also if you want to post your drawing, put it on Instagram. You can use hashtag memory map, and we can collect these. It would be really interesting to see um, what you drew and what you would like to say about that. Um, I'll tell you a story about the time that I did this, one of the times that I did this with um, Syrian kids. This was in 2015 in the fall at a Syrian refugee school in Reyhanli, which is a town in southern Turkey, right on the Syrian border. Um, The Syrian border is literally like a few miles away, Um, and this is a town that we worked in many years, and we still work there. Um, And it has a population; it has a population about over 110,000 Syrians in a town that used to have a population of 60,000 Turkish people. So the entire population of the town changed. They're urban refugees. And so um, I did the mapping home um, workshop many times over the years. Every time we would go and work in a school and do innovative education workshops. And with time, the first time I did it in Atme, which is the IDP camp, it was very easy in 2013 for the kids in an IDP camp who were living in tents to remember their home in Syria. And they actually had a lot of pleasure in remembering their home. As time passed, the kids were growing up, it actually became a source of pain, as well as kids started forgetting their home, actually. And so I switched the workshop to be I would draw my home in Aleppo, and they would draw their ideal home in the future. And it became a design exercise, um, and the kids had a lot of fun really imagining, you know, the best home they could live in. And in this case, I did it one time as an, as urban planning. I was bored one day and wanted to switch it up, so I, we made it. T- we turned in fr- from architects into city planners, and I taught them about what makes an ideal city. Of course, I drew Aleppo, and um, you know, having a landmark space. the the, the the citadel, um, the streets, um, homes, hospitals, schools, all the things that make a great city, and um, brought it to Reyhanli, told them about, you know, for them, the lake in the middle of the town was a place where people would congregate and have the park, so that's your focal point. In Paris, it would be the Eiffel Tower, so we would talk about cities, and then I would have them draw their ideal city. And so, this classroom had about 50 kids in a very small room, Um, they began, they were very inventive in their um, in their tools. So they started using um, the edges of their books as rulers. They would find, you know, make architectural drawing tool- tools from whatever they had around them. And so um, they drew wide boulevards, happy families, amazing towers, and all these things. And then I saw some kids were drawing their cities on the edge of a. Like of a, of a coast, there was a body of water. And so I thought that was very curious. So I asked them, Where is your city? And they said, You know, somewhere far away. And I said, Well, where is this city? And they said, You know, in Europe. And so this is fall of 2015, and this is how you know the manifestation of watching so many people that they probably knew um, getting on the boats and go, going to, from Turkey to Greece. Um, this population of kids that we were working with, this community, did not have the money to even—it was a dream for them to be able to pay a smuggler to get to Greece, and these, would not, these people were left behind and wanted to go, but just couldn't afford it. Um, on the edge of those coasts, a lot of these kids were drawing little tiny triangles, and I, again, I didn't know what those were, and I asked them, what are these, what is this, and they looked at me like, what's wrong with you, how do you not know, and I, and I didn't know, and they said, this is the refugee camp. And I was very shocked, because even when we're asking kids to imagine their ideal cities, they still needed to have a point of entry which is the camp the refugee camp even in, they couldn't imagine an ideal city without it um, and here are a few images of the kids doing exactly what Dua and Nasreen just did they would stand in front of the class and talk about their ideal cities again here you can see these were fifth graders And so what I learned from this exercise is that the kids um, were able to do something. They transformed memory into imagination. It shifted for them. Home for them was not in a certain time or even a certain place. It was in the future. And it was a very important lesson because it taught me that uh, my idea of home is actually very limited. Um, Home equals Aleppo is a very limited thing and not even just Aleppo. Home equals my soul social bubble in Aleppo. And, um, and so this I, the revolution and the war to come after really shifted the idea of what home is on so many levels. Um, for ki- these kids, Syria was equaling a, a question mark and home was a question mark. It was something that was more of a process than a fixed state. The revolution itself also destabilized what the idea of home is um, for me. And so when the protests began in 2011, um, and you kind of, as Syrians, began to um, really interact with the revolution and the protests and the different cities, you began to, home no longer was that little bubble. It was becoming all different things. It was becoming people that I didn't know, people that I didn't even meet, people that I would see on the on YouTube videos, um, from Daraa, from hummus, from villages, like Kafranbil, from all over Syria, that we'd never even heard of, we started to actually bond with sometimes virtually and sometimes with people that we would meet, um, and we would meet online. And um, actually, in this room, there's a couple of people that became very close friends because of this, the revolution. And you create these bonds, and at the same time, um, it changes how you make bonds with um, the memories that you actually have. This is an image of the last people of eastern Aleppo. Um, It's an iconic image, and um, from the end of 2016, um be, right before the fall of Aleppo, the last people to get on the green buses that forced displacement to idlib and I don't know any of these people, but I felt that I knew them uh, we had been watching the watching them for uh, months um struggle and you know Even as somebody who grew up in West Aleppo, when there was no such thing as West and East Aleppo, um, these are people that I would have never actually met. And um, they became um, my people more than the people that I grew up with. And that's kind of the cost of um, the uprising is that you created bonds and you you lose other bonds. And so there is a kind of unraveling of society. Um, this is the village of Kafranbil um, in Idlib and um, you might know it from their famous banners um, made by Ra'ed Faris who was assassinated a few months ago and was a friend and Ra'ed, you know, Ra'ed and people like him basically showed us that um, Syria and home is really about the new communities that you make through the shared values that become much more important of your roots and what you're told where home is. And it becomes about these calls for freedom and dignity. We bond over these and let go of other um, identities that we had before that were based on society and who you knew and who you lived close to. Those kinds of norms no longer made sense. Um, the loss of belonging um, is at a huge cri- uh, price, as well as the um, numbers uh, that of the loss of Syria, which I'm sure you know. Um, it, there's over 500,000 Syrians who've lost their lives. The number is much, m- probably much higher than that. Um, tens of thousands of people, higher than that, probably are detained. Um, over six million people in Syria are internally displaced. Almost six million people are refugees outside the country, most of them in Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, um, a million in Europe, and so forth. So the, the, the scale of the tragedy is extremely high, as you know. Still one of the largest humanitarian crises of our lifetime. In terms of the refugees and the displaced, more than half of that number is children and youth. And this crisis is affecting them in a a way that's different than adults. And um, this is the focus of our work. And uh, one of the moments that really changed how I thought about what we can do for this crisis was a moment also in 2015, in the spring, in a different refugee school in Reyhanli, when I was in a classroom with a group of high school boys. And there was a boy named Ali, and he was telling us about his experience. Um, His experience is actually pretty typical for most Syrian refugee kids. He had witnessed his uncle uh, being killed, and he also had been displaced several times. So when when families are displaced and become refugees, they've usually lost their home multiple times. And so these are common things of trauma, of witnessing violence and destruction, and becoming refugees. He was very frustrated for himself and his friends, at there's no prospects for the future, um, no hope for the future. And I was talking to him, you know, that we all have to have hope, the war is going to end, we'll all go back. These kinds of sentences that uh, we were used to saying. And he looked at me and he said, and this is, was very profound, he looked at me and he said, four years for somebody like you is nothing. Four years for me is a lifetime. That was two thousand. 15 it was 4 years since 2011 now we're 8 years in and it's true. You know, For a 15-year-old, 4 years, you've missed your secondary education. For a 16-year-old, you've missed your opportunity to go to university. For a girl, it might mean that you, were, you went into early marriage because there was no other option. Or for a boy or a girl, you went into a lifetime of manual labor when your actual dreams is to become... You ask them what their dreams are and they'll say, doctor, lawyer, teacher, all of these big dreams, but their reality is very, very low. And so I began to think about exactly what can we do for kids like Ali, and we began to focus at Karam Foundation on the teenagers, specifically 14 to 18 year olds. How can we intervene in their lives in ways that can actually make an impact and turn their lives around for the better. And where we started was from the idea of these definitions of what they're telling us Syria is, Syria's war, Syria's refugees, Syria is hopelessness. We began to look at refugees and specifically refugee youth in a very different way. And we began to define them in different ways, um, uh, such as, you know, Sir, as Syrian refugee kids having limitless potential and, um, and what if Syrian kids um, could value their own ideas, any ideas, and that they could build those ideas? And what if we were able to give Syrian refugee kids every technological tool available in terms of technology, computers, spaces, and even mentors that are trained to be able to teach them in a the way that would actually fundamentally change the way they think And so what if we gave um, these kinds of tools, this is a laser cutter and um, 3D printers to Syrian refugee teenagers, what would happen? And so we built a place called Karam House in Raihanle, and um, I want to show you a short video about it. so um, that's Karam House we're really proud of it, we built in 2018 that's from you guys <laughs> we built in 2018 our second Karam House in Istanbul and um, one of the best part about parts about that video is it's actually made by Suleyman who is our graphic designer in Karam House Rihaniye, he's 22 years old now. Um, he was. He's from Damascus. Uh, they became refugees at age 15. Um, he witnessed his father being executed and a cousin. Um, his mother brought him and his three other. Um, his brother and his two other sisters to Hanley, and uh, and he's self-taught to do graphic design and videos and we hired him when he was 19 years old so everything that you see on our website or on Facebook page is actually made by Suleyman and now we have Bishr in Istanbul made by Syrian refugees themselves telling their own stories, taking their own photography, creating their videos um, the workshops that you saw for the visiting mentors, we actually have a visiting mentor here, our journalism mentor um, Hala Rubi who actually is from? Dubai, lives in Dubai, not from Dubai, from Hamas. But um, she runs our whole journalism workshops um, for the kids and brings actually journalists. And is um, Diaz here? Diaz here? No. Yes, and she's also one of our entrepreneurship mentors who's been with us. So people come from all over the world to do these kinds of workshops, but the actual core mentor team in both houses are Syrian refugees, young um, ref- professionals. We hire architects, engineers, teachers, and we train them to do the curriculum, which is a design-based curriculum um, that I'll talk about. I want to show some images of the kids um, at Karam House. Um, this is Yasser with, with his invention. He wanted a GoPro, and we said we did didn't have that in the budget, so he actually built his own GoPro, which is like a skateboard slash camera attached so he can make his moving videos. This is Kifah and her friend, and they had a virtual exchange workshop where they worked with a school in the U.S. um, in teams of four, two American kids, two Syrian kids, working together to design a new prosthetic um, for real-life cases in Rayhandle, either amputations or paralysis cases, and they worked on their designs together and built them. Um, and this is Abdullah also and they have their their design um, for a man in Rehani who has um, paralysis in his arm how to um, make his life easier and so the way this works is really um, the curriculum works in that it sets of workshops or studios um, very similar to architecture school surprise surprise uh, where they actually take these studios they are confronted with a problem usually a social problem and have to create the solution to it using design um, tools, and design um, methodologies. And the curriculum that we have is actually in conjunction with Nuvu Studio, which is a, a, an innovation school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, the person who started Nuvu Studio, Saeed Arida, was my colleague at MIT also an architect, he invented this method of teaching um, to really reinvent the education system in the US. It is um, deployed at Nouveau Studio and other partner schools in America and now in Europe, at really elite institutions that have the budget to be able to do this in their schools with um, the kinds of tools and the maker space and everything that you need. Um, And this is the first time that we're doing it for refugees, the most vulnerable parts of the community of refugees, for free, as well as in Arabic. So it's a joint, a process of learning how to do this and actually having a local community team to teach it. Um, here are some close-ups of some of their work. And we have a platform where you can actually see the, um, you can see the projects. And so this is from a project, a video that I wanna show you that is, they're building a drone. And this is their own video. This is just released really from a couple of weeks ago. We've been spending the past They've been spending the past six months or so trying to build a drone, and I keep getting these videos. I wake up in the morning, and it's like afternoon in Turkey time, and I'll get these videos. and And these, and they constantly are trying. They were very small models. Now they're getting bigger. This specific one, they're doing it as a group. And what I love about these videos is that um, you can hear when the drone crashes, which it constantly does. um, You hear them, you know, yelling out, and they're yelling in kind of like there's a euphoria, right? And I love that because this is basically. Teaching them that you—it's a process, and failure is part of the process. You fail and fail and fail until you succeed. This is something that's completely alien. Anybody who's Syrian in the room understands that this is completely alien to our education system, the way that we grew up, and uh, and especially now for refugees, you know, failure is really not an option. They don't think of that as an option for to success. But we do teach them that this is actually the only way to succeed, and so they, they understand that it's okay for it to fall until we can actually make it fly, and hopefully they'll be able to do that in the next few months. Um, this is Batool, she's 15, I met her in January. Um, I asked her what she wants to become, which is kind of my favorite question to ask um, kids, and she said that she wants to become um, um, an artificial intelligence engineer. And I didn't even know how she knew that existed. Um, And it was really, I was floored. And she said that's what she wants to be. Here you can see what she wrote about her memories of Syria and what Karam House means to her. And I asked her to define Karam House to somebody who doesn't know it, um, who hasn't been there. And she said, it's very simple. Uh, Bait Karam huwe halamna fi makan wahid. Karam House is all of our dreams in one place and I said we need to make her into our marketing person <laughs> and it was really amazing to see that um, this is Yusuf in white and he is very special to us because Yusuf um, was in Reyhanli attending Karam House last year and he told um, one of our um, director well, our director of development was visiting and he told her he was very sad because his family had decided to move to Istanbul and he would not be able to attend Kerem House anymore and she told him the good news is that we were opening in Istanbul and so I was there on the day of the opening which is this day he was there already on opening day and continues to attend and he says that there should be a Kadam house wherever there are Syrian kids and we believe that too and it was a really amazing thing to witness actually giving them continuity in their experience this is an image of the kids with um the kids at Karam House, within the, in the in the monitor, you see um, the kids at Nouveau Studio. So this is during one of the virtual exchanges, and they're all together here. And I love this image. Um, it shows them as one group, collaborating um, as a team, virtually, learning from each other, exchange, exchanging culture, exchanging ideas. And I also love it on the basis of, um, throughout the years, from the beginning of the revolution, the beginning of the protests, one of the biggest, the most cynical questions that was always asked asked, it's asked less now, um, just because of where we're at in this war, but it would always be, what is the alternative? What's the badil? And I always felt that this was a very offensive question to Syrians, because it put us in a place where we would have to be very defensive, and we would have to um, answer this question, where is... There is no imagination that there is anybody in Syria that can rule and govern without fear, with dignity, with freedom. Um, and this is outside the imagination of everybody, even in, outside the imagination of some Syrians. Um, and it was always this question of what is the alternative? What is the alternative? And the, and the truth is, is that there were many alternatives for Syria. There are many other endings to this story that would have not put us where we're at now. Um, there are people that have died and um, are imprisoned and are now refugees and disappeared that were the alternatives. And there are alternatives now in Syria in doing civil society work as much as they can still do it. And there are alternatives in the youth. And so we see our work as really building this alternative future for Syrians. Um, they might not go back to Syria, but they're, they know that their responsibility is to be productive, positive citizens in whatever community that they live in. This is our goal and our goal is to build 10,000 leaders in the next 10 years through these programs that we have. Karam House is one of them but we do other programs with families um, and and, um, schools and universities levels. So that's our goal. We define a leader by every Syrian uh, youth that we empower to get through higher education and or have the job skills to have a really good job in the future in the competitive global market. Um, we asked the kids at Karam House to define um, what Karam House is to them. I don't know if you can read this, but a few of them would said Karam House is home, Karam House is our second home, and my favorite one is this one in the middle, in the whole it is everything, and it really defines what we're trying to do. You know, Karam means generosity in Arabic. We are doing generosity at a very deep um, impact scale, um, and we are about doing generosity to its max. So So what we're doing now is really giving everything to those who've lost everything. And um, and this is really the definition of everything. This is Karam House, Istanbul, that we opened in October. It, it used to be an embassy, um, and in, it's in the Ayub area of Istanbul. So if you ever go to Istanbul, please come and visit. It's in an area that is very you know in need. Many Syrian refugees, vulnerable communities. So we're not in some trendy district of Istanbul working. We are where the people are. And um, but it's a beautiful building, and we're really proud of it. And. Kids come in, heads held high. This is what we deserve. This is where we belong. This is our house. They come on their weekends. Some kids take three buses to come on their weekends, and they say that this is the best part of their week to be there at Karam House, and we're really proud of that. Um, throughout the years of my life, you know home has changed a lot um, in this definition you know my grandmother Nana taught us that home is our roots where we are from, um, where we belong um, and then at RISD I learned that home was you know it's a, I started building a home while being nostalgic for my old home in Aleppo, and um, I learned that home is a process, and it's not about it's about the journey and not the product. And um, people like Raed, um, my friend, and so many other people that we've lost over the years, taught us that home is actually our community, the the community that you build, um, and the people that you find your shared values with. Um, But the kids taught me something really important, um, a lesson that home is actually a verb. Home is making, it is something that we are continuously creating and evolving and that's actually how we can move forward from a tragedy like this one to believe that we are making our home, we're making our place in the world, it's a process that doesn't continue, we're all still doing it no matter what age we're at and it is like that bag of clay in the process of um, sculpting our futures. And I'll end with this image of Layla. Um, this is one of my favorite images from Karam House. Um, I don't. It's, for me, I feel like a personal connection with it because I look at Layla, and she's working on her project, and you see her focus, and you see her intent, um, making her project. And I feel I, I see the I see the girl at RISD, um, the person working on her projects, and I know for a fact that Layla's brain is being rewired right now in this moment. She is becoming another person, and um, and she doesn't even know that. And she didn't have to be, you know, somebody with the privilege that I had to be able to go to a university in America and study. And she didn't have. She's a refugee living on the border where you can where you can see Syria from your window and, um, and she is actually having those tools and having access to everything and there's no reason for refugee kids not to have access to everything to be able to build a better future and so um, I call on you all to like hold your pieces of paper of your drawings and really think about um, the place that you drew And think about that if this was your home that you're going back to tonight after the lecture, um, think of what if you didn't have that, didn't exist, and the only thing you had from home was this piece of paper. That is actually the reality for 12 million Syrians that all they would have is this memory of their home, and it's for 68 million refugees around the world, and so I ask you all to reflect on this meaning of home Reflect on what your purpose is to bring home to others in your community and bring the sense of belonging Because we are all in the process of making our home and making our homeland and we can do it the way we want It's not dictated to us. We all have our agency to do this and We are all we can change our minds as we know and it's our duty to do so and as Ali always reminds us There's no time to waste. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find
0: more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu/slash Institute.